Like I said, we're, we're a church on the move. God's on the move. And we are involved in mission in a lot of different ways. One of which is Operation Christmas Child. You remember that back in the fall and we were gathering boxes and all those boxes? When some people were giving online. So Dan and Phyllis Daniels were kind of our adopted missionaries to go out. And they went all the way to the East Coast to be able to help pack some of those boxes. So they want to give a report on everything that they experienced with that. So this is Dan and Phyllis Daniels. They're going to give us a report and some pictures of all of the stuff that, that we provided. Let the little children come unto me. Hinder them not, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Mark ten fourteen. Dan and I would like to uh, share with you our experience uh, at the Operation Christmas Child Processing Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. We were very privileged to be able to go, and um, <clears throat> as you watch the slides behind you, you will notice that the boxes are plain red and green. They aren't marked like the boxes that we use here. And the cartons are also unmarked, and that's because these boxes are going into restricted areas and areas uh, of unreached peoples. They were ordered online by people all over the country, just like you, who has a heart for the Lord. And there is a new program this year called the Gold Star that actually will uh, help us to be able to easier count those boxes in our numbers as we go through with our, bo- with our church. Each box contains exactly what you ordered online, um, plus school supplies and hygiene items. It's a a really busy time there, and there are a lot of different jobs. Um, There are greeters that greet you at the door as you come in to work. And then there are line leaders that um, are people that are on staff with Operation Christmas Child that give you all the instruction that you need how to do your job. And there are pickers. And those pickers come through and, and put all those items in the box. They have the list that was printed off of what you ordered, and everything you order on that list goes in that box. And then there are tapers and cartners. There's quality control, warehouse workers, so the whole room is just buzzing. Operation Christmas Child is based entirely upon prayer. So every step of the way, everything is prayed for. Every child that's going to receive a box is prayed for. Every box is prayed for. Uh, the workers, both you here at home that are collecting these boxes and the people that are distributing them in these countries, and especially these boxes, a lot of these people are putting their lives on the line to get the gospel to these children. And that's the main focus. These gifts are a conduit, and Dan will share with you in a minute how that works, to reach these children. But with each box, Um, the gospel is presented, and these children have an opportunity through the greatest journey to continue to study the word. Um, So Dan is going to give you some stats. Okay. When we were back there, we packed 270,000 boxes, and then we were, had enough supplies left over. We did another 30,000, so we did a total of 300,000 shoe boxes, and we packed them in 10 days. 
43% of those people ordering shoe boxes this year were first-time donors or first-time using uh, shoe boxes, either on physical or online. The U.S. did one, uh, 9.1 million boxes this year. Worldwide, we collected 10.5 million. The Northwest Territory, which is five states, we donated 339,000 boxes. Our area of uh, Washington County, Columbia, Classup, and a little of Tillamook, we collected just over 14,000. Right here at the church, we did 436 boxes. And we're going to move that up to hopefully we can do 500 for this coming year. So we have two quick stories about these unmarked shoe boxes. The first one takes place in a little country in Benin, which is in Africa. This village has a witch doctor that leads the community, and everything is by him. And he is, does not like anything about Christians. Or the, they are not even allowed in the area. OCC teams were able to bring some of these unmarked shoe boxes into the, the community. One of the reasons, because the witch doctor, which was the leader, was very greedy and wanted the gifts. The people loved the gifts. Because of these shoe boxes, this witch doctor was able to hear the gospel, turn his life completely around, now says... Jesus is his king, went back, smashed all of his Bible of idols that he had from voodoo worshiping. Now this country has 107 planted churches due to the Operation Christmas Child. In India, the Lehar people, that number in the millions, are an unreached people, were an unreached people group. They made idols for the Hindu followers. And um, again, Operation Christmas Child was able to bring boxes in. And through one child who received a shoebox and received the Lord as his Savior and went and shared with 17 other families, 31 of them uh, were, became Christians, and 11 were baptized, and they started a new church there. Um, just from one, ch one child, one shoebox. Um, so every box that you pack is so important because it is changing lives, not only of those children, their families, their communities, their towns, as you see. Right now in the Ukraine... Um, Samaritan's Purse is very, very active. We've had a thousand churches there over the last decade that have been partnering with Operation Christmas Child. So that has been the contact for Samaritan's Purse to go into the country now. Uh, Samaritan's Purse has um, a field hospital in Lviv. They have two first aid stations at two of the train stations there. And always, not only the health and care and meeting the needs of those people, but the gospel is always presented. So again, great uh, way of outreach to these people. 
There's one woman there in Ukraine who was involved with Operation Christmas Child, but even during all of this war, all of the shellings in, in her community of Mikhailov, you've probably seen it on the news, uh, she continued to teach the greatest journey until she had to flee the country. And um, so now Operation Christmas Child is taking boxes, shoe boxes in to the children who are refugees of Ukraine. They're going into Poland, Hungary, uh, Moldova, and Romania. And so the work is just continuing, and we're so excited to be a part of that. We're so thankful for all of you that are a part of this ministry. We pray that you're getting excited about um, next year's season. Start your shopping now. When things go on sale and you see them, have a closet in your house. You pack things away. We're hoping to be able to have a packing party again this year, plus your, your individual boxes. And we are going um, to Fullerton, California next year, uh, Lord willing, to the processing center there. And we'd love to have any of you join us that would like to be part of the team. So if you're interested in doing that, please, please let us know. Thank you. We're gonna we're gonna pray for Operation Christmas Child and and just these shoeboxes that are going out in the ministry that's going on. So let's do that even now. God, we thank you that you are a God on the move, and that your word is going out and you are alive and and changing lives. Lord, uh, I thank you for Dan and Phyllis and and all those that are working. Lord, it's uh, the many hands that make the the work light. But, Lord, we know it's uh, your gospel that changes lives. So, Lord, we thank you for, for their hearts in going out and, and leading this ministry. And may you put that upon the hearts of others to continue to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. So at this time, we're going to continue in um, worship as the ushers come forward for this morning's offering. So let's go ahead and let's pray. God, this, this day the Lord's Day. We've come together as a church to worship and to honor you with our lives. Every ounce of our being. Lord, we know that before us is the table that you've set for communion. We think about the provisions of the week, all that you've given to us. Lord, worship is much more than just singing a song. It's surrendering our whole life. And even now, these resources that we give back to you, these tithes and these offerings, may you bless them and use them for your kingdom's sake. For the ministry that's both here in South Columbia County and to the uttermost parts of the world that you've called us to partner in. And Lord, we ask that you would bless these gifts and the givers. And that, Holy Spirit, you would fall fresh upon us even this morning as we come into the throne room of grace and worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, God, oh, God, and 
as we partake of communion this morning. just want to remind you that this is a celebration of what Jesus has done for us. It's also an opportunity for each of us. Maybe we need to do business with God. We're going to give you an opportunity to do that. This morning, um, the ushers are going to be serving you at your seats and be passing out the elements this morning. So just want you to, uh, as we begin, just ponder this question here that's on the screen. What does communion mean to me? What is it all about? So ushers, would you please come forward and serve the people?
So I'll stand before the Lord. What does communion mean to you? When we consider the bread, it reminds us of the body of Jesus that was beaten, punished, hung on the cross. Where Jesus died a a torturous physical death and received the full wrath of his father for sin that he never committed. He died in our place. You think about that torment that he experienced so that we wouldn't have to experience. Our greatest fear is this physical death, but there's a fear that's, that's much greater, and that's eternal separation from God and judgment. Jesus took it all on that cross. What does communion mean to you? Freedom, love, life. Let's hold the bread up before God and just ask for a blessing upon it. It reminds us of that freedom and that love and that life. God, we thank you for the freedom that you've given to us. Freedom from sin, from punishment, from eternal suffering and separation from you. Because Jesus died and rose again. He has given us the the guarantee of eternal life. A new life, new body, new physical resurrection. Lord, we thank you for this bread and all that it means to us as we take it together. We do so to honor you, Lord Jesus, and to remember you until that day we see you again. We thank you in Jesus' name. Let's all take the bread together. Jesus also gave us a reminder through the cup. The night before he died, he took the third cup of the Passover meal. And he says, take this cup. This cup will remind you of a new covenant. A new covenant that's ratified by my blood. Up until then, the the blood of bull and goats could only cover sin. But the blood of Jesus washes away sin. Our sins are cast from the east, from the west, and remembered no more. You stand before a holy God, holy, right now, because of what Jesus has done. What does communion mean to you? It means that you're clean, that you're pure, and that there is no condemnation that can be hung on you. Because at the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. God, we thank you for this cup and all that it reminds us of. We will spend all eternity considering what you did to redeem us. As we look upon you in heaven, we'll see a lamb that was slain. We'll see the marks. That'll be a reminder. But till then, you've given us this cup as a reminder of a new relationship that we have with you. May we walk in the newness of that relationship every day. We thank you for this cup and all that it means. In Jesus' name. Let's all take it together. Thank you, Lord. The ushers are going to come forward. And they're going to gather what we call a benevolent offering. Benevolence means it's just a thank you. It's a grace offering. 
This offering is specifically designated for meeting the needs of people. Because God so loved us, we can love one another. Let me pray over that offering as the ushers come forward and we'll continue in worship and then studying God's Word. God, I thank You for all that You provided. God, You've provided so much to us that out of the abundance of, of gratitude, we want to provide for other people. So Lord, whether these resources meet people's needs in paying for rent or utility bills or medical bills, whatever, Lord, may you direct these funds to meet the needs of others, that they would know that it came from your hands through your people to meet their needs. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.
we want to be in because when we're in your presence our lives are changed forever so we invite you to change our lives as we now listen hear and apply your word in Jesus name amen you may be seated if you would open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 1 beginning with verse 12 as we we're working through and beginning this, this study in the book of Acts. God's on the move and is always on the move. And as he's on the move, he brings about different things that sometimes will rattle us. One of those things that God brings is change. How many of you guys like change? Change is hard. Change is difficult in a lot of different ways. And when change is necessary, how do you find a path forward when change happens? 
You say, well, Carrie, what do you mean? Well, there are different things that happen in our life that bring about a change. Maybe it's a, uh, a job loss or job opportunity. Maybe it is a loss of a loved one or a birth of a child. You, you, you have a young married couple that are just the two of them and a new baby enters the picture. Is that a change? Oh, yeah. Change is inevitable. Change is something that is all part of our life. And when we, we have to try to figure out where are we going, when something happens that brings about a change in our life and God shuts a door and opens another door, sometimes God shuts a door, but he doesn't open that next door right away. And so you're kind of caught in between. How do you manage that? John F. Kennedy once said this, change is the law of life. And those who look only to the past or present are certain to miss the future. Change is going to happen. And, and when change happens, we can get stuck always looking back or just looking in the puddle that we're in. Or look to the future. If we believe that God is sovereign, and we do, then God is also sovereign over our future. Amen? And so within that, we, we need to trust Him in these things. But I got to thinking, why, why do we try to avoid change? I like normal. I like routine. I like the things that, that, are, that I can plan. I don't like change, and I don't like surprises. With, within that, we think about that, but the, the deal is change is inevitable because it's part of our growth and it's part of our life, and we're going to experience change as a Christ follower, and even in our condition. Do you realize that change is necessary for you as a Christ follower? Not to remain the same child as you are spiritually, but to grow. In fact, Paul would mention this in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, and he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among brethren. And the word that jumps out to me in that passage is conformed. That means that you're going to be in a constant state of spiritual change, that your life is going to always be evolving. It's what's called progressive sanctification. In other words, you are moving to become more like Jesus. That requires change in some of these things. Well, Jesus dropped a change bomb on the disciples. What was the change bomb? The change bomb was this. I'm leaving, and I'm leaving you in charge. They didn't see that one coming when they signed up three years earlier. They didn't see the cross. They didn't see all of these things. And so we're picking up in the account of Acts where uh, Jesus has ascended. He's ascended into heaven. He left the disciples a command I'm going, you go to Jerusalem and wait. Wait for the promise of the Father. Where they're going to go into Jerusalem, they're going to wait for about seven days. And they need to move forward. But here's some questions that they might have had as Jesus is floating off into the sky. Okay, we're going back, but who's going to be the leader? Who's going to be in charge? Who's going to direct us? For the last three years, Jesus has told us what we needed to do, when we needed to do it, where we needed to go. In fact, he's instructed us, given us everything that we need to do. Who's going to lead us? And Jesus said, well, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to lead you within this. Ministry is no longer going to be a one-man show. It wasn't going to be just Jesus anymore. 
Ministry is multiplied by the work of the Holy Spirit in the individual disciple, and it would continue that way. That was God's intention. That ministry would continue through the Holy Spirit via the believers, inspired and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, they would go to Jerusalem, they would wait for seven days. Can you imagine that waiting period? Seven days. It would seem like an eternity. Jesus is gone, Holy Spirit's coming, we've got to wait here. Where would they wait? They would wait in a place called an upper room. We'll take a look at that in a minute. Why? Because the upper room would become the rally point. There's some key elements that we can glean out of this passage on how to navigate the path forward. Three, to be specific. To take a look at the need for obedience. To obediently do what what Jesus has already told us to do in anticipation of that change. Something else that we'll glean from this is the necessity for unity. When you're going through change, you're, you're not to do it or try to do it by yourself. And thirdly, when you're going through change, in order to navigate that change, you need to be in prayer. A lot of prayer. And my hope is, as we take a look at this, that you're going to develop a pattern by which you can address change. And that you could follow this, this path of obedience. When something's changing in your life, you can say, okay, I remember. I remember in Acts what the disciples did. That they obediently followed. They stayed together and they prayed. Let's read about it in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. I'm going to ask you to stand as we read the passage that the Holy Spirit does the teaching this morning. As we read, be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and He will bring out things in this passage that you can ponder on. In Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, it says, When they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey, when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all were with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And at that time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, parenthesis, gathering of about 120 persons, was there together, and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us, received his share in this ministry. Luke's parenthesis. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And that's a weird picture. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, the field was called Hakalidama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it. Let another man take his office. Therefore, it's necessary that the men who have accompanied us all this time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And so they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, 
show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So what's the first thing that we see in this path forward? In verses 12 to 14, Luke, who is writing to Theophilus, lover of God, he's trying to explain to him this whole account He's already explained the, the account of the acts of Jesus in the gospel, but now it's the acts of the Holy Spirit through the disciples. And he's explaining this, this passage that is an in-between passage after Jesus leaves and before the Holy Spirit arrives in this gap that is there. And the first thing that we see that is necessary is following instructions. When you come to a place where there's a change and you've got to find that path forward, the key is... Follow instructions. Go back to what Jesus has already taught you. And hang on to that. Hang on to what He has already shown you. If you don't know what your next step is, then meditate and ponder on the things that Jesus has already taught you. He's already given you some instruction. And so do that. Well, we think of what are the instructions. The instructions was, in verse 4, Go back and don't leave Jerusalem and wait till the promise of the Father. Now, that's a pretty clear instruction, isn't it? Go and wait. Well, they could have said, no, we don't want to wait. We're just going to go back up to Galilee. Well, that wouldn't be obedience, would it? There is a specific time and a place by which the Holy Spirit would come upon the gathering of the disciples all at one time. Why? Because there is going to be an outpouring and a preaching and evangelism that would take place in Jerusalem. Why? Because that was all part of the plan. The plan was, the gospel was to go out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. But it was to start in Jerusalem. The Jews were to get the gospel first. And Jews were to preach the gospel to the Jews. Hence the twelve disciples that were there. They were to be part of the plan. So they, let, they left the Mount of Olives... And in Luke, it tells us, in Luke 24, 52, they left with great joy. Why? Because they had now a plan and a mission. They got to see Jesus. And so there is this joy, and they were traveling a Sabbath day walk. Well, how far is a Sabbath day walk? Sabbath day walk is about three quarters of a mile. It was originally set up in Leviticus, I'm sorry, in Numbers uh, 35, 5. It says this, And you shall also measure the outside of the city, on the east side 2,000 cubits, and on the south side, 2,000 cubits, and all the west side, 2,000 cubits, and the north side, 2,000 cubits, and the city center. This shall be their pasture lands for the city. So what was it? Both here and in this and in also Leviticus, what they did was, when Israel was constituted as a nation, they came out of Egypt, they set the tabernacle in the middle. And then all the tribes would camp all around the tabernacle, facing the center. And the, the extent of the camp was only to be 2,000 cubits long, or three-quarters of a mile. That was considered the Sabbath day walk. Why? Because on a Sabbath day, when they would gather around the tabernacle, they would all walk in on the Sabbath day, and that would not constitute work by that effort within that. And so that tradition continued on in the Sabbath in the Jewish culture. Even today, the, the Jews will do that, and they'll set up synagogues accordingly. Within this. 
And so we know that they were on the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is really an amazing place. It's the, Jesus where, it's the place where Jesus ascended. It's also going to be the place where Jesus returns. And, in, and we're told that he'll come and he'll set his foot on the Mount of Olives. It'll split in two. Well, where were they leaving? They were leaving across the Mount of Olives, somewhere on the hillside by Bethany, coming across the Kidron Valley and going to the place called the Upper Room. Now, there's a couple of pictures that I have that are the upper room. This is the traditional upper room. Do we know that it's exactly the upper room? No, not 100%. But when we go to Israel, we go to this place. It's an amazing place. So an upper room in the Near Eastern culture would be the third floor of the house. So you had the living quarters in the bottom two floors, and then you would have this patio, not really a patio, like a big party room that was up on top, it would have a staircase that would come up the outside of it. It could be lent out to different people, travelers, or different things that were there. So this was a model of an upper room. We're pretty sure that it, it um, could be the, the site. It's not 100%, but we're pretty sure why. Because on the second floor, when they did excavations, they discovered a Jewish synagogue that dates back to 90 A.D., and that synagogue is interesting because that synagogue does not face the Temple Mount. When they, when they discovered all of the arrangements and the, the graffiti, this is where graffiti can be good, the graffiti was all Christian graffiti, and the, the, the altar that was set up was actually facing towards Golgotha, not the, not the temple itself. So whether it's that side, I don't know. It, 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 we don't see a thing that says, you know, Peter was here, you know, nothing like that. But it's an interesting place to be able to be into that and to see this upper room, this place. The upper room was the place where Jesus would have had his last supper with the disciples. The upper room was the place where they would have gone back to and hid out while they were waiting for Jesus. And then Jesus appeared in the midst of the, the upper room and revealed himself to them. This upper room became their chapel. It became the meeting place. You could put 120 people in this room. It would be very crowded, but you could do it. And it's in there. So we see this, this, uh, this place where all of these people would gather, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. All of the disciples are mentioned. All 11 are there, plus women plus the brothers of Jesus. It was the place where the power of the Holy Spirit would come. It's interesting we think about all of these, this gathering of people that are together. In Acts 1.13, it gives us the list of the disciples. Notice who's the first name that's on there. Peter. Why Peter? Well, Peter was always the guy that was inserting himself into a lot of different situations. But he was also the guy that experience the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember when Jesus asked the question, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, you know, you're, you're a prophet, you're, you're John, you know, you're all of this. And Jesus said, who do you say I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. He was the one that experienced the power of the Holy Spirit that came upon him. And testified Matthew 16, verses 15 to 22. So he becomes this spokesperson that, that is leading. And you always see him in the first. 
And Peter, James, John, and Andrew are the top core, the top tier of the leadership that is there. Well, in the absence of Jesus, Peter is going to take a leadership role that is within this. He's already been restored by Jesus back into ministry from his, from his failure. What else do we see? In verse 14, not only do we see the obedience for the next chapter, the next movement, the path forward, the disciples had to be obedient, do what Jesus said, go and wait, but we see something unique. In verse 14, it says this, and they were together with one mind. Now, where do you find in the Gospels ever the disciples ever thinking of anything together? They were like a bunch of junior hires, just running around, only looking out for themselves. Now you've got these people of one mind together. They were of one mind, one purpose. What was their mind and their purpose? Waiting for the Holy Spirit. They set aside their differences, and they were waiting for one thing, the Holy Spirit. There was the unity and the fellowship together. When you're looking for the next step forward, the path forward, you need people around you to encourage you, to strengthen you. God did not create the body of Christ to be dissected into parts, but to be unified, to gather together. They were all of one mind looking spiritually with this, and literally it reads the single mindedness or same purpose. The other thing that we see that's in this that's unusual to the culture is we have the men and women together in the same place. Jesus had brought together within the sense of unity men and women to be able to worship together. If you go to the Temple Mount, there was the court of the women, right, that was separate from the Jews. They had to go to separate places, but not in the new work of God. Jesus restores and creates unity according to God's purpose. And they're of one mind, one space, men and women, apostles and everybody that's together. Who else is there? Mary, Jesus' mother. Who else is there? Jesus' brothers. He had four of them. They're all there. And what are they doing? They're having a prayer rally. What are they praying for? One thing. The Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, that which was promised to them. We see this, this inclusion of everybody together that is in this. Now you say, well, why is it interesting about Jesus' brothers there? Because Jesus' brothers and Mary, while Jesus was alive, thought he was nuts. We, we can read about it, and you can read about it in the Gospel account, where they would go and they would stand outside and say, well... You know, we need to take Jesus back to Nazareth. He's lost it. He thinks he's God. Mary knew a little bit, but the brothers didn't. They didn't become believers until after Jesus had rose again. In fact, you can read about Jesus appearing specifically to his brother James in 1 Corinthians fifteen seven. Why? Why James? Because James would become the pastor of of the first church, the first Christian church in Jerusalem. It was a specific revelation to him and to this calling. The next thing for James. We know his brother Jude would also come to faith and gives us the letter Jude. 
and would be part of the Jewish church that is within this. They were all together with one accord. That word one accord appears six different times in Acts. Unity. The path forward requires the church to be in unity. If you're going to do anything in moving forward, you have to be of one mind and one spirit, worshiping one God with one faith. The dissected church today has become powerless because there is disunity. Now, there are worship distinctions, and that is true. But those distinctions should never separate the body of Christ. Not on the essentials. It's unity among believers that needs to be key. In fact, Jesus in, in Luke eleven seventeen says, A house divided will what? Fall. Where does unity begin? Unity begins in your own home. Because if your house is divided, the church will be divided. And if the church is divided, the community will be divided. And if the community is divided, then the world becomes divided within that. Within that, we've got to understand that unity is imperative. I ran across a quote of an unknown author who says this, If there are two persons praying, there are three. If three meet to pray, there are four praying. There is always one more than you could see. How powerful is that? Do you realize when you meet together for prayer, come Thursday... When you meet together for prayer, there's always one more that you can't see. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is enhancing that time of prayer. Enhancing. His role is to enhance and to pray when we can't pray effectively. D.L. Moody said this, I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the people of God are divided. Let me read that again. I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the people of God are are divided. If you want to know what the path forward is, seek out unity with other believers. That means forgiving them of their sins. That means asking for forgiveness of your sin. To be able to humble yourself, to serve one another, to be in that place of unity within that. To set aside the differences for one thing. The power of the Holy Spirit to come. The preeminence of Christ to be preached within this. What's the third thing? Pray. If you look at verse 14, they all got together and they were praying. Prayer is found in almost every chapter in the book of Acts. Prayer is the foundation of the church. Prayer is the breath that we breathe unto God. We breathe out prayer. And we can breathe in grace. It is what gets us connected into the heart of God. To be able to understand that, that primary action, it's a church that prays. We have people that pray Monday mornings. We have people that pray during the service. We have a prayer team that's praying right now. On Thursdays, we're, on this Thursday, we're going to have a national day of prayer. Can you imagine what it would be like if every church was filled to the hilt of people praying come Thursday. We would rattle the gates of hell. Prayer is key 
to getting things done. If you're not praying first, then your actions are futile. You want to see things change in your home? You want to look for unity within your home? You want to look for direction? Don't try to make it happen. Pray. How long should I pray? Pray until God shows up. Remember what he said. Go and wait. This upper room would be open for seven days. And people would come and go throughout that period of time. And they would be what? Praying. What are they praying for? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Did they know what that looked like? Absolutely not. All they were told was go wait and pray. Just go wait and pray. You have no idea what God can do, what God wants to do, and what God will do until you start praying fervently, focused. John Bunyan once said this, Prayer is the shield of the church, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to Satan. I like that. Because when we pray, we're putting up the shield of faith. When we pray, we're worshiping God. But the part I really like is every time I say a prayer, Satan is getting whooped on. I like that. We need prayer to be our breath. There is no effective witness without the Spirit of God. And there is no Spirit of God unless the worshiper is praying to receive the Spirit of God. No effective witness. These guys cannot go out until they receive the power of the Holy Spirit upon them. People didn't want to hear their opinion. They wanted to hear the Word of God and they wanted to hear it with power and with strength. And that's not going to happen unless you are praying specifically. And so when we think about it, obedience, unity, and prayer are essential elements for the path forward. If you're stuck or feeling stuck, ask these questions. What have you taught me, God? Who do I need to connect with to gain strength and power? And how should I pray? And God will reveal that path forward. And He may not necessarily do it instantaneously. As I said, these guys would wait for seven days. Sometimes it takes longer. Sometimes it's instant. It's God's timing. So does that mean, well, if you're waiting for that path forward to be revealed, should you do nothing? The answer is no. Waiting on God does not equate to idleness. In fact, the path forward is really prayerfully seeking the direction of things that you know you can do. What do you know you can do right now? Well, for Peter, he understood that ministry needed to take place. What had changed? The leadership structure. Jesus is gone. How many disciples were there? Not rocket science. It's how many? Twelve. And how many they got now? Eleven. We're missing one. Who set up that structure of disciples or apostleship? Jesus set it up. Now, one guy abandoned his post, as we read, Judas. Peter, who's the leader, looks out and he says, wait a minute. There's a need right now. And we don't need really to, to, 
to, to wait for this one because Jesus has already set it into place. What is the need? Well, the need was for restoration of leadership. In verses 15 to 20, Peter steps forward and says, we can do this. He, and he quotes, he says, at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, 120 people that were there, and said, the scripture to be fulfilled, the Holy Spirit before the mouth of David concerning Judas. So, so what he's saying, well, we got 120 people here. There's 11 of us. Out of the 120 people that are there, they're going to have some needs. We need to take a look at the structure. In the Jewish construct, 12 was a significant number. Why was 12 a significant number? There were 12 what? Tribes. Tribes. So in Jewish construct, they're saying God had ordained this structure of 12. Judas abandoned his post and he goes through the reasons why that leadership change needs to be, or that leadership needs to be reestablished. It needs to be reestablished because we need to align ourselves to what Jesus' attention was. He left, and we've got this vacancy of leadership. We know that when we read in Revelation, we will see the structure in God's kingdom with the twelve apostles. In fact, Revelation 21, verse 14 says this, And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So it's God's intention that there was going to be twelve apostles. Why? Because the twelve apostles was going to match the New Testament work, and it aligns with the twelve tribes of the Old Testament work. Peter recognizes this and says, look it. And you know what's really cool about Peter? You know how he, he grew spiritually? He's quoting scripture. He's, he's saying this is a fulfillment. And he's quoting out of Psalm 69.25 and Psalm 109.8. And he makes the distinction that David was inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak about this guy who would abandon his post and lead the enemies against the king. And said, this is the fulfillment that's right in front of us. That's here. And so the position of apostleship is still valid. Question. Did Jesus make a mistake by choosing Judas? No, he didn't. Everything was intentional. There was no mistake in that. But just because Judas abandoned his post, does that mean that the post should remain empty? No. No. And so within this, we see a couple of really interesting things. Ministry doesn't stop just because somebody screws up. It doesn't stop because the ministry leader abandons his post, falls away from the Lord, walks away from God. What would it be like if in the church you had a pastor who fell from grace, fell into sin, and, and went away, and the, and the congregation went, well, there he goes. Close the doors. Is that what God wants? No. Ministry should never be based on an individual or a person. Ministry continues. And it should continue. God's program will continue regardless of any one person. And so Luke gives this, this parenthetical statement about Judas abandoning his post, giving some descriptions about how he bought this property, but he really didn't buy it. 
but it was bought with his wickedness. Do you remember the account? Judas goes to the religious leaders and said, what will you give me for Jesus? And they said, well, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. Deal. And it says, and he led or guided the people to Jesus. He got his money. He had an issue of conscience. Goes back to him and says, I messed up. I betrayed an innocent man. Here's your silver back. Religious leaders go, uh, no thanks. And we don't care about you. Judas goes out and hangs himself. Religious leaders go, well, what do we do now? We've got this money. We can't put it back in the treasury because it's blood money. So then they go and they buy a field. Judas hung himself over this place called the potter's field. And within this, he hung himself and stayed there for a long period of time. Long enough that his body would bloat and it would rot, as Luke gave us. I'm sorry if you had breakfast this morning. But but where was this? Well, the field was called a keldama. And for location, this is a picture of the field. So you, up here, this is the... the Valley of Hindon. So you have Israel and, and the modern city that's up here. And this is this really skiddy valley. Well, this used to be all across here, especially down in this area, was the trash heap. It was a potter's field. And so all of the trash and all the dead bodies and everything was outside of the city. And it was all cast out into this area that was down here. Notice it's, it's still even to this day not really built up. There's a map that will show you. That if you take a look at, this is the upper, or I'm sorry, the upper room is here, the house of Caiaphas, Herod's palace, the temple here. The Mount of Olives is right here. Akeldama is here, down across this bottom valley that is here. The southern steps would be in this area. And so somewhere in this location, there is a, there's a Catholic shrine that's there now, within that. That is the place that was bought. Um, do they know for sure? No, but they have a good idea. It's somewhere in that valley. Does it really matter? Not a lot, other than the fact that it fulfilled the prophecy, uh, and Peter quotes it in verse 20, let his homestead be made desolate, no one dwell in it, and note, let another man take his office. So he understood that the position needed to be changed. What is the path forward? The path forward is to when you suffer a loss, is there something that you can do now while you're waiting for the next direction? What did Jesus establish for them? He established the role, the apostolic authority. And the apostolic authority was 12. And so Peter says, let's restore this apostolic authority because this Judas was with us. He experienced all of these things. Well, how do we pick the right guy? Well, he goes in and gives the criteria who should be considered for Judas' replacement for this role of the apostle. So the criteria was, in order to be a replacement for Judas, he had to be present at the baptism of Jesus and in ministry, and had to be present all the way through to ascension. And he had to study under Jesus during that period of time. Why? Because the role of the apostle is to be an eyewitness. What are you an eyewitness of? Jesus said, go into all the world baptizing men and women, people, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have given to you. 
So in order to be able to be in that place, Peter says, the qualif- you had to have been a student of Jesus' ministry during that whole time. And you had to be an eyewitness of his physical resurrection to be able to see that. You can't be a witness of that which you haven't seen. So for the twelve, they had to be eyewitnesses and students of Jesus physically, taught by him. Paul would mention this in Ephesians chapter 2, 20 to 22. He says this, And having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fit together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together in the dwelling of God in the Spirit. So these twelve were to lay the foundation. Now, question. Once you lay a foundation, do you need to lay another foundation on top of that foundation? No. The foundation is the immovable, squared up piece that holds the whole structure. What is the foundation? The foundation is the eyewitness and receiving teaching specifically from Jesus and the physical resurrection. These twelve would would see that and they would begin to teach. And as people would become disciples and apostles, the church would be built on that truth and then built upon that truth. So the truth has to be effective by an eyewitness. So these twelve would be those that we would call the apostolic authority. Are there, is there the office of the apostle today? No. Why? Because no one meets that criteria. There is no modern day apostle. There's evangelists. There's people that are missionaries. But the apostleship as seen here is not that. And you say, well, what about Paul? Paul mentions himself that he was an apostle outside of time. You know, we have a football team that talks about the 13th man, right? Paul's that 13th man. The original apostleship, the 12, were Jews that were to witness to the Jews. Paul's apostleship was to the Gentiles. And so we've got to understand the structure that is there and, and within that evangelism that is there. So out of these, all these people, they screened and they came up with two. Out of all these people, these 11, okay, well, who is it? Who do we know? And so we know that there were two names that are given to us in Scripture, Joseph of Barsabbas, or Joseph of the Sabbath, they think because he was born on the Sabbath day, and Matthias. Now, you don't find these guys early on in Scripture, and you don't find them after this again. Tradition has it that Joseph um, would go on and be an evangelist. He would be tested, and, and they would test him as, as a, a, an evangelist, to go drink some poison, and he, would, he drank some poison according to tradition and didn't die. Matthias was supposedly a, an evangelist to Ethiopia, and his bones are actually in a shrine in Germany in Treves today. So how did they determine? Well, first they met the criteria. But how do you move forward? Well, you, you, you apply what you know, and you trust in God for what you don't know. They said, okay, we're going to cast lots. And so the process was casting lots. Notice how he says, therefore it's necessary for these men to accompany us. And he gives the whole criteria. They put forward the two men, verse 23. And then what did they do in verse 24? They what? Prayed. First they prayed. 
And so they prayed, You, Lord, you who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy the ministry that the apostleship which uses turned aside or abandoned. And then they drew lots within this. They first prayed. And they were seeking. And they say, God, you know the hearts. Only God knows the hearts. You know the hearts. God, you choose. What was key in apostleship? You had to be personally called by God. By Jesus. You know the hearts. You pick. We can't pick. We can put them forward. But only you can pick. And then they utilized an Old Testament sanctioned means by which to know the will of God. The casting of lots. Now it is not like drawing straws or a game of chance. Hopefully we're going to get the right one. Right? That's not what it was. In Leviticus chapter 16 verse 8, God established the casting of the lots or the Urim and Thummim. It says, Aaron shall cast the lots for the two goats and one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And so God established the means. Why? Because they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. So God says, this is the way. And so they rely on, the, on what they've been trained. This is what God said. To know his will, we're going to cast the lots. How would they do that? There was a number of different ways. Stones, white stone, black stone, and, and a number of things. And so... One of the ways to determine the will, and, and you can read about it both in, in 1 Corinthians 36, is they would write the name of the individuals on stones. Put a bunch of stones in there, and then they would shake them up, right? They would shake, and the first stone that pops out with the name, that would be the one that God determined within that. Now, there's a couple of things that are essential. First, you start with the supremacy of God. With faith and with prayer. And you dedicate that. And then you're trusting in God for the outcome. Solomon would write in Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So they didn't approach it by chance. They began by prayer and then they trusted in God for that, within that. Matthias would be selected as being the twelfth. And he would go on to ministry. Again, we don't have a whole lot about him in, in the book of Acts, or, but there's quite a bit written in church history within this. But what do we see? We see the disciples not being idle because they don't know what to do next. When the path forward is unclear and you're looking for the path forward, just do what you know to do. Don't just sit and go, well, what are you waiting for? Well, I don't know. What do you know to do? And do what you need, know you need to do. How do I move forward? Start with obedience. God, search my heart. I want to follow what you've taught me to do. I want to gather together with other people that are on the same path in the same direction. And I want to pray. And while I'm praying... I'm busy doing the things that you've already commanded me to do until you give me a new direction. God's on the move. The church should be on the move. We start with the basics. We seek God in prayer. 
We follow in obedience. We stay connected to the church. And then do the next thing that God tells you to do. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we can move forward as a church, that we can move forward as a community of believers following you because, God, you've set us apart to do that. Lord, I pray as we move forward that we would continue to honor you all the days of our life and that within that we would seek your face. Lord, I know that for many people there are new chapters before them and they feel stuck. May it not be a feeling of stuck. May it be a feeling of celebration. If you're looking for your path forward, my encouragement to you is this. Check your heart for obedience. Check your life for fellowship. And practice the presence of God through prayer. He'll show up. Like a rushing wind, Jesus breathed within. Lord, have your way. Lord, have your way. able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without without fault and with great joy to the only god our savior be glory majesty power and authority through jesus christ our lord before all ages now and forevermore everyone said amen praise jesus have a blessed week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.